If you have your Bibles, please open them up. We are going to be in the book called 1 Corinthians. We're going to discuss how you and I need to, must, preach Christ crucified. We need to. Amen? Especially as these days and months and years wear on, we need this more and more. Please stand with me if you're able to, but turn in your Bibles, please, if you're not there already, to the book of 1 Corinthians. We are going to be in chapter 1. We're going to pick up at verse 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. And it says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the cross. Lord, thank you even for all the songs. I remember even as a kid growing up, so many songs about the cross of Christ and the blood of Jesus. There's truth. There's power in that, Lord. We pray that you would help sustain this fellowship and us as individuals, that as we go to and fro throughout New York City and beyond, that we would be those that can preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified, even as Paul mentions in this here book. There's power in that. But we ask that you would empower us, Lord. Give us boldness to proclaim your word of truth. The church is a pillar and ground of the truth. And we don't, don't want to be like those that have already apostatized, those that have fallen away from your word of truth, God. We need your strength. We need your grace. We need your enablement, God. Please empower us mightily for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you. You guys could have a seat if you would. So perhaps you have heard three days ago, just three days ago in Alabama, a man by the name of Kenneth Eugene Smith was the very first person in the United States to be executed by nitrogen gas. Anybody heard about that? Some of you guys did. The very first person. So Fox News reported on this saying that execution by nitrogen gas was our nation's very first by also a new method of execution in 42 years. It's been 42 years since a new method of execution has come about. Nitrogen gas, like never even heard of that. (laughs) Three days ago, just three days ago, this past Thursday. And according to the Supreme Court of the United States, I looked this up. This is what they say. Quote, lethal injection is the most widely used method of execution, but states still authorize other methods, including electrocution. Mm, I don't know about you. I wouldn't want to go out that way. Gas chamber. Hanging. I guess hanging's still done. Sounds like the Old West, right? And ring squad. Now, they probably got to add to this list now. Nitrogen gas. But in America today, when a person is sentenced to death, the method of execution typically is death by lethal injection. That's typical across the United States. But back in the days when Jesus was here walking this planet, when a person was sentenced to death by Rome, what was the typical method of execution that Rome used? Crucifixion. Death by crucifixion. And you and I today... We wear the cross. We wear it boldly. It's in our namesake. We have a big one here in the sanctuary. There's a one that's a missionary group painted on the wall for us. Like I said, it's in our namesake. You go to our website, atthecross.org. I was blessed and fortunate to grab that a couple decades ago. We grabbed that. I forget how long ago. We want to preach the cross to Christ. We must preach the cross to Christ and preach it boldly. Amen? Okay, and not just from this pulpit, not just me. I'm just one collectively in the body of Christ. You and I must. We could wear the cross boldly, but here's what the cross preaches. The cross preaches of a man named Jesus, Yeshua. He was Messiah also, as the entire Bible prophesies about. Daniel was given a prophecy by the angel Gabriel. Here it is on the display. Daniel 9, if you're taking notes, this is Daniel 9, 24 through 26. 
Here's the prophecy given by the angel Gabriel. He's a messianic messenger. He comes on the scene. He points you to Messiah Jesus. Here's what it says in verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until, and it says, Messiah, the prince. Who is that? Jesus is prophesying the coming of the Messiah. There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And check this out in verse 26. About this prophesied, this coming Messiah. And after the 62 weeks, I have it highlighted here, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And you should know, the Hebrew word here for cut off, it prophesies about Messiah not just coming, but cut off, that he would be eliminated, he would be killed. It spoke of Jesus, Messiah, suffering a violent physical death. So not only did angel Gabriel prophesy this to Daniel, and then Daniel, oh, that's good, I'm going to write this in my book. Daniel chapter 9. But it didn't only prophesy about Messiah to come, but that he would come and he would suffer a physical, a violent death. He'd be eliminated. He'd be killed. Notice very carefully, Daniel 9, verse 26, when he was killed, cut off, eliminated, it would be not for himself. And you can't make this up. This is God prophesying this hundreds of years before Messiah Jesus came on. So this is the cross. It was, and that's not just the only passage, it's there in the Old Testament. Why did that happen? Why did Jesus die on the cross? It was not for himself, it was for who? Point to who it's for. For you and I, right? For all of us, he died for the world's sins, amen? So the cross preaches of Jesus, who was convicted to die by crucifixion on a Roman cross for your sins. Again, Jesus died not for himself. And Jesus had not even one sin. Think about this. You probably woke up today. My guess, just statistically, is that you're like me. You probably already committed 100 sins before you even walked in the building here. You argued in your heart. You just sinned. <laughs> you complained to God. You just sinned. God, when you can answer that prayer, you complained. You sinned. Jesus didn't even do one sin. Not even one sin. He committed no crimes, except that he was what? The king of the Jews, even as they wrote on his cross. And so God's crime, so to speak, was what? Loving you. God's guilty of loving you. God so loved the world. Isn't that cool to think? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> the only thing God's guilty of is loving you. Points you to what? The cross. The cross preaches of God's motive to save you through Christ's crucifixion. It was nothing but the motive of love. And hey, in, in crime-solving, that's a huge thing, right? What's the motive? What's, I don't get what it's there for. Like, why is it this thing happened? Why did this person get murdered? And motive could be a big difference between what we call like murder one and another crime. There's different classifications even in America. But the cross preaches also, this is good for you and I to know, and I want us to consider this before we go on. It, call, it, it preaches of one place that you and I know of where... For every human being alive, God shows you and I his love, his grace, his mercy. And the one place that every single human being can be pointed to is across the Christ. You need to know that. You need to know that. The one place where God simultaneously poured out his love, his grace, and his mercy for you is where? The cross. Let's say it. Where did God simultaneously pour out his love, his grace, and mercy to? You, on, where? Points you to the cross. And then knowing that the cross preaches this, there is no single human being alive today that can say, oh God, you don't love me. Oh God, you don't give me grace. Oh God, you don't have mercy on me. Oh, he's going to always point you to the cross. He may not answer your prayer request. How many of you guys know that? God, do you love me? What does he always do throughout the word? He's going to point you to his work that his son did on the cross. 
So God always points to the cross to prove his love. He proves his mercy, his grace. Here's what he says in John 3, verse 16. You guys know this. It says, for God so, what? Loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, Messiah Jesus, should not perish but have everlasting life. What's prophesied there? God the Father giving over his son because of his love for you. His motive was love. That he gave him over to do what? To die on a Roman cross being crucified for your sins and mine. It's for, notice, the Greek word cosmos, translated in English as world. He died not just for the elect select, the frozen chosen, for you, the whole world, right? That's what it says. Don't change the theology. Let Jesus speak, amen? That's what he says. God so loved the world. If you want to get in the Greek language, literally, cosmos. What is that? Any and all of God's creation. He didn't go to any other galaxy. He didn't go to any other planet. He came to this galaxy, this planet, and he became one, how do we say, one type? He became a human being. Jesus Christ became a man. He became one of his creation. This species, Homo sapiens. Okay? He didn't become a Martian on Mars. He didn't go to any other galaxy. He doesn't have a girlfriend in another place. He has one wife to be. He's not eternally married with her yet because the church collectively is here on the planet. We're still here. He demonstrates his own love towards us. Here's what it says in Romans 5 verse 8. God demonstrates his own love towards God. Prove to me you love me. I have. That's why he doesn't answer that prayer request. God, move that rock if you love me. God, give me a bazillion dollars if you love me. Prove to me you love me. No, we might do that in our earthly language and try to coerce or force one another. God's not going to answer that. Why? He's already proven it. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Listen to that pronoun. Today we talk about pronouns today, right? Here's God's pronoun. Us. Christ died for us. Romans 5, verse 8. Here's what Paul also wrote in the book of Titus. It's really what God says to you and I. Titus 3, verse 4. But when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior toward man, appeared. I highlighted certain things to look at. Oh God, you don't love me. Yes, you do. He does. I'm giving you some of the verses. The love of God, our Savior toward man, appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but notice, according to his mercy, he saves us. God shows you his love, his mercies. What is he going to do? He's going to point you to the cross. According to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. That's Titus 3, verses 4 and 5. Here's also what he says in 1 John 4. I'm going to inundate you with this today. We're going to preach about the cross of Christ. Amen? We need to. We must. We even put this in our church name. Why? Because many churches and denominations, oh no, let's not talk about that. Take it away. Removing it. Can't do that. Want to put that in our namesake. Here's what it says in 1 John 4, verse 9. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Notice it says here, in this is love. In other words, God is telling you what agape love is. This is it. And this is love, not that we love God. Your love has nothing to do with the way that God defines love. It's first John 4. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. God's the initiator. You are the recipient, the respondent. But that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation, the atoning sacrifice. God had love for you. And what did he do? He sent his only begotten son, Jesus, Yeshua, the Messiah, to die on the cross, to be the atoning sacrifice for your sins and the sins of the world. God loves you. If you get nothing out of this today, just remember, God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. On top of that, he gives you his love, his mercy, and grace. It goes on and on. He had mercy. Simple way of looking at mercy not getting what you deserve. I had a mom. She was very gracious. I think when I look at it now being a parent, maybe a little more gracious with me than, 
than she should have been in some cases. But let's say you did something wrong, and you know you're going to get it. Ooh, the papaw is coming. You're going to get that papaw, the little spanking. <laughs> and you're confronted with what you do. You're confronted with your sin. You know you deserve the punishment. But your dad, your mom, or they say, but you're not going to get a spanking. You're not going to get punishment. You deserve it, but you're not going to get it. I'm going to have mercy on you. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> remember those times as a kid? I remember that. That's mercy. Not getting what you deserve. You and I deserve to die on the cross, didn't we? So, Christian, don't ever tell God and argue with Him about your rights and what you think you deserve. Because I imagine my God, my Heavenly Father going, oh, you want to talk to us about what you deserve? The cross. Oh, never mind, Dad. <laughs> I'm okay. <laughs> so you deserve to die on the cross. Remember the guy Barabbas? That's a picture of me. The movies always portray that guy real crazy. <laughs> Imagine like spit and dribble coming from his beard. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's a picture of us. So Jesus took the cross of Barabbas. He was a convicted, condemned criminal that was going to die on the cross. Guess who took his place? Jesus. It's a picture of you. It's a picture of me. So you and I, what we deserve is that we would die on the cross for our sins, our many sins. Christ Jesus, oh, he didn't even do one sin. But because he loved us, the Father sent his only son, Jesus. He had mercy on you and I. So Jesus took your cross. He took your place. That's mercy. On top of mercy, you also get grace. Getting what you don't deserve. Mercy. Simple definition, simple way to look at it. Not getting what you do deserve. Grace, getting what you don't deserve. On top of being saved from the fires of hell, saved from sin, the pain and punishment, and on top of burning in hell, waiting judgment day, then after the great white throne judgment, being thrown into the, what? lake of fire to burn how long? Forever and ever, for eternity. On top of being saved, where God had mercy on us, where Jesus died and took our place on the cross, on top of that, you get grace. It's good enough that he saved you from hell and the lake of fire, right? On top, That's mercy. On top of that, God also gives you grace. You get heaven. Think about that. And what did you do? You sinned. What did he do? Took your sin upon himself, died for those sins. Did he deserve it? No. So none of us can complain saying, God, you don't love me. God, you have no mercy on me. You're so mean. I asked for $100. You only gave me 50 <laughs> None of us can complain that God doesn't love us or God doesn't have mercy or God doesn't have grace. He's going to point you to the cross of Christ. So on top of his love, he also has mercy. He also has grace. Still does, right? So God gave you and I grace. The cross. The cross is what Paul constantly preached. Here's what he wrote in Galatians 6, verse 14. But God forbid that I should boast except in, notice he says, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Galatians 6, verse 14. The cross preaches of Christ's suffering a violent, excruciatingly painful and torturous death for you and me. Just so that you can have eternal life. Just so that you could be saved from the punishment of sin. And when you study Torah, guess how many sins you had to do to be forced to comply with God's law that you'd have to go offer up a sin offering. How many sins would you have to do? One. <laughs> one. <laughs> so something that God says, and not even a willful sin. God, I know this is bad. I know you say not to do this. Don't look. He's talking about sins that you did and it wasn't brought in your memory until later on. Like, I can't believe I just sinned. Now I'm forced. I'm compelled. So think about all the times you, you and I might go, oh, I don't know if I should do this. Okay, don't look, God. So Torah doesn't include that. You need to know that. So that's, if you look at it, it's like, why, why do Jews seem, whether in the Bible or even today, Orthodox Jews seem like they're so living according to the letter of the law? Because they know those willful sins, they're not included. 
okay, in the way that Torah was written. Think about what that means. That if you did, it's like a oops kind of a sin, and your friend, your buddy says, hey, do you know that this is what it says in Torah? I didn't know that. Oh, man. Go talk to mom and dad, because now I've got to go to Jerusalem, to the temple, and offer up this animal to die in my place. Man, it's going to take time and money. Uh, I've got to tell my employer at the job. There's a lot you'd have to do just because of breaking how many sins? How many laws? One. Only one. So the cross. Jesus died and took your place so you could have eternal life. And so you and I can experience things like God's love, his joy, his peace. Do you and I deserve that? One iota, one bit of God's grace? No. But yet he's this abundant, gracious God. He keeps pouring out. He's a God that will do exceedingly, abundantly above all that we can ask or think. That's Ephesians chapter 3. That's the God. That's the God of the Bible. And that's who he is. That's his character and nature. Therefore, you and I in the church, we must boast of Jesus Christ and him crucified. We must boast of that. We must preach the cross of Christ boldly and constantly. Amen? We need to. We must. So we can wear the cross. We can wear it boldly. We put it on our tombstones. Uh, all in sorts of things. It's, it's on our logo. We even have that trademarked with the government. But if we wear the cross, let's make sure that we share the cross boldly. Amen? Even more important. And when I say we... That's your calling, not just mine, yours as well. You and I need to be, some might say, light bearers. Share the light of Jesus Christ. Image bearers. You bear the image and likeness of God. And also, you're being conformed to the image and likeness of His only Son, Jesus. And you need to share these things. Share the cross constantly. Here's what it says in this verse. Again, verse 18. For the message of the cross is... Foolishness. I want to bring out to you in the original Greek language. I just did a, a screen capture of my Bible study software. I think this is in Strong's Concordance. You can look this up. Foolishness. It also means silliness. Absurdity. Now, Christian, this is why when someone first shared with you the reality and said, Hey, you're a sinner. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. You probably scoffed or mocked. I know I did. Is there anybody here? You thought it was silliness, right? You thought it was foolish. And now, flip the script, you're on the other side, and you're like, hey, Jesus is truth, man. He changed me. Radical transformation of who I used to be. And his spirit, like living water, pours out through me. And now your friends, your family members go, what happened to you? Are you drinking the Kool-Aid? What's going on? You cuckoo crazy for Cocoa Puffs? <laughs> and now you're one of those crazy Bible thumpers, those Jesus freaks, right? <laughs> Who, who's that way in their family? That's me and my family. <laughs> and I like that. Why? Because that's truth, right? So you may have been on the other side where in the world or even, this isn't like an oxymoronic statement. I hate to say this. Worldly Christians. They even think it's like crazy. Oh, don't go overboard. Come on. Jesus died for you, but come on, let's go get a beer. No. Jesus died for you. He purchased you with the price of what? His blood, his death. You don't belong to you no more. <laughs> okay? You belong to him fully. But yet he gives you that power, that control to do what? To choose to give yourself to him. You gotta do that daily, amen. So the message of the cross, it's foolishness, it's silliness, it's absurdity. So, as I put here in the, the notes or on the display, this is how unsaved people see Christ's cross. It's silly to worldly people. And hey, as you share this, if if that's your message, it's my message till I die. Kill me if I stop preaching the cross of Christ. You can at least tell my wife, she'll come and Slap me upside the head, silly. I'm sure she would. <laughs> She'd be right to do so, because I'm telling her to. But it's silly even to worldly Christians. This is one way you could tell if someone claims to be a Christian, but they're fake. Make sense? Okay. If you're sharing with them that, hey, there's power on the cross of Christ. I remember my own days, my own times, I shared with you guys recently, 
when I was younger, I don't think I was saved because I was I would go to these churches and like, why are we singing about blood? I thought it was can I say silly? Now I know because I could match that up with scripture. It's like that was me. Though I wasn't saved. So we'd always be singing about, always hear guys and gals preaching about the cross of Christ, the blood of Jesus. I I thought it was weird. Anybody else like that? Okay, and then you get saved, you're like, oh, now I want to sing about that old rugged cross. <laughs> you're one of those people that you thought was foolish, right? Silly. I'll be a fool for Christ, amen? We need to. That's how the world will look at us. So don't fear, because the way that God sees things, and we might say in God's economy, the way that God sees things is totally antithetically opposed to the way the world sees it. You know, because you are first in darkness, like the Jewish day, it starts in darkness. And it comes into light. That's how the Jewish day starts. That's how it was for you and I. Start off in darkness. Come into the light. (laughs) That's how it is. Let's go to verse 19. Here's what it says. For it is written. Leave it there. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. If you're taking notes, Paul's quoting Isaiah 29 verse 14 here. Isaiah 29 verse 14. You go and read the chapter. It'll kind of open up a little more for your understanding. We'll read that later on, Isaiah 29. So in how God's wisdom sees things, human wisdom is foolish. Please understand that. The way that God has his wisdom, he sees things a certain way, and he sees human wisdom as foolish. For example, human wisdom would say that royalty must be wealthy, rich. Anybody understand that? You kind of, you may not have heard those exact words, but you kind of understand that. However, in God's wisdom, King Jesus was born into po folks, as you might say, <laughs> po folk. Jesus and his family, them, they was po folk. <laughs> they were poor. He was born into a poor family. His entire life, he lived without much money. So the world will look at that and say, foolishness! How can this guy be the king of kings, lord of lords? How can he be the savior? He's born into po' folk. So worldly wisdom is confused by this. There's no answer for that. That's the way of God. I'll even take this church. This church was birthed out of a one-car garage here in Middle Village, Queens, New York City. I remember even thinking, like, God... Are you sure? I mean, I wouldn't even want to come. This is, that was the starting of this church. It was birthed out of a garage. I remember thinking, I shared this with you guys before, but that's just honest. I'm just being honest and straightforward. I remember thinking, who's going to come to this thing? If I got invited here, I wouldn't want to go. But that's the wisdom of God. That wasn't my choice. And look at us now. It's like nothing other than the grace of God. It's just the way of God. Human wisdom would also say that your deliverer should kill off all enemies. God, send someone, smash their teeth in, like you're reading about David in the Psalms. <laughs> kick their teeth in. Yeah, kick them in again. Kick them in the side. That's worldly wisdom. But in God's wisdom, he had his only begotten son, Jesus, tell us to love your enemies. And then he died for his enemies. And you're probably sitting there, yeah, that's good. I applaud that, Jesus. You died for your enemies. But guess what, Christian? Look around the room. Who were the enemies of Jesus? You, me. We were the enemies of Jesus. If you don't understand sin and righteousness, you and I were the enemies of Jesus. He says, love your enemies. And he proved it. He was loving you. (laughs) Pray for your enemies. And then he goes and dies on the cross. For who? For his enemies. You and I were enemies of the cross of Christ. And that's the way of God. Human wisdom would say that a convicted criminal who is crucified is a shameful thing. Oh, don't talk about that, uncle. No, no, no. <laughs> Sometimes we have people in our family. No, 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 you don't want to mention that guy. Oh, he's cuckoo crazy. You know, he spent, spent some time in the slammer. That's human wisdom. That's worldly wisdom. It's embarrassing. That's a foolish thing to talk about is what they might say. But God's wisdom says this. If you're taking notes, this is Hebrews 12, verse 2. Looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, 
despising the shame. The cross was a shameful way to die. So you and I might wear it proudly. You could wear like a diamond pendant necklace with a cross. Like, oh, this cost $25,000. I could wear it boldly on my shirt. Today's equivalent of execution, maybe the gas chamber. How many of you ladies or gents would wear a necklace with a gas chamber on it? That sounds like a mm, little cuckoo crazy, right? But yet we would wear that boldly today. We put it on our tombstones. You put it on a meme you sent out on the internet. We have it in our, our logo. It's in our namesake. It's on our domain at thecross.org. In our emails, when we send out emails, we want to preach it. But yet the equivalent today, death by injection, death by gas chamber, and now death by, was it nitrous gas or something like that? Nitrogen gas, I forget what it was. They, those are the equivalents of being executed. It's a shameful way to die. It's sad. Some, some gentleman just got executed three days ago. Do you think his family's going to be like, yes, I'm going to wear shirts, I'm going to boast it proudly, that you were the first one. Yeah, right on. You're next. <laughs> You're not going to wear that boldly. So we wear the cross boldly, but we got to remember, it gets so uh, sanitized, if you will, by culture, that we, we might forget what it meant. Okay, again, Hebrews 12, verse 2. For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. What was the joy set before him? Look around the room, Christian. Look around the room. It's okay. You were the joy set before Jesus. And there's a principle here. So Jesus didn't just look to the cross. He knew what was beyond the cross. Right? You. It's as if he would say, Father, right, remember? Any way that this cup can pass before me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. So you were the joy that was set before Jesus. That he went to the cross despising the shame. Why? Because he had spiritual joy. Going to a cross, that means you and I, to do the Heavenly Father's will, you can also tap into the Holy Spirit's empowerment, enablement of you and I having spiritual joy. Right? You can have the same love, same joy, the same peace. Going to a cross, your cross you and I bear, it's not going to be what Jesus did. You're going to read later on in Hebrews 12 about that. So he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So the ways of God are wise, but the world sees them as foolishness. God's way of seeing things, what the world says is wise, God considers foolishness. It's interesting how they're antithetically opposed. The world says something is wise. God says, nope, foolish. And what the world says is foolish about God, that's God's wisdom. How can a Messiah be born to some poor folk? There's no room for them in the end. Come on. He didn't have golden diapers at least. You have something there that changes diapers. You have a nice bassinet. You know, I work in a place where it's like some wealthy people come in and they got living with like Rolls Royce kind of carriages for their babies. Some of them actually bring their dogs and baby in the baby carriage. You guys see that? Like dog made baby carriages. Like, oh my gosh. Our kids didn't even get that kind of treatment. <laughs> But Jesus, well, he was put in what? <laughs> yeah, animals feeding drop, a manger, right? Would you put it, uh, your baby in a dog feeding bowl? Not too sanitary. <laughs> That's the wisdom of God. That's how he works. He's going to take what's foolish in the world to confound the wise of the world. Uh, got something interesting that I was reminded of. About 18 years ago, some of you guys were here. Who here remembers uh, the VFW? Jose, Wendy, I think some of you guys were there. About 18 years ago, we had a couple come in, and they're asking me, like, okay, so tell They want to be missionaries. They're like, okay, so tell me, how is it that you raise your money, your funds, and how do you pay for this place? Well, they want to be missionaries. And they're one of the times, I think, that I, I kind of – Tell people, but almost kind of tongue-in-cheek, jokingly say, take this hand, take this hand. Please, God, what should I do? And they're like, no, seriously, tell us, what do you do? How do you raise funds? They couldn't understand that you simply have to trust in God. This is like 18 years ago. 
And so sometimes, even Christians, when they have worldly ways, they've never been taught how to trust God. Sadly, I think they left kind of confused. They came in you know, a bunch of times and still kind of see them time to time around the city. But they couldn't simply believe that you actually have to pray and trust God. Like, no, how do you raise your support? I came from a missions group where the way that a lot of missionaries do is like you, you take a picture of yourself, you put out a missionary letter. I remember seeing one guy, he's like sitting under a tree just like with a guitar. Please give me your money. He's kind of like the look. It's like, I'm not doing that. No way. Why? Because how am I going to say, I'm trusting in God, and you should too by giving me your money. It's like, that's fake. I have a God that if he's telling me what to do, like we say in Calvary Chapel, where God guides, God provides. You know, to this day, we've never asked for a single penny. Some of you Mexicanos, I'll say in your language, not even a single peso, <laughs> not a centavo. We've never asked for any money, and yet God still provides. That's foolish with the world. Uh, even our landlord, our landlord asked me one time, like, so are you like one of those big creatures, you're flying around the jet, like, I, I can point him to the box on the wall. So we're a group that we live by faith, even told him I'm a volunteer in this church. He couldn't comprehend it. And I point him to the box on the wall. I told him, we don't even pass the plate. I think he grew up Catholic. And he's like, just kind of scoffed at it. like, in his mind, he's probably thinking, you're an idiot. And I get it. That's, that's what people think. But we need to preach also the fact that we can trust in God. Amen? That, yeah, simply where God guides, God provides. How does he do it? I don't know. It's not for you and I to figure out. He never says, figure out the ways of God. He just teaches you and I to trust him and to have faith. right? And he does. I don't know how he does it. About 14 years ago, I worked at a place called American Bible Society in Manhattan. I was there for about 10 years. And there's this younger guy. He was going to seminary. I know he had the heart. Like he want, you could see him. He's like always kind of agitated. He wanted to be a preacher and all. There's just some guys that are like that. He was going to seminary, and he's like, okay, so for you and your church, tell me, what's your five-year plan? I take this hand. I take this one. Lord, what do you want me to do today? And again, that guy, he could not understand that you, you can't get somewhere if you don't know where you're going. I don't know. I'm like, children of Israel coming out of Egypt. Where are we going? I don't know. Are we there yet? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> That's why we need prayer, right? I don't have wisdom, but I know who does. He tells us in Isaiah's book that Jesus is the wonderful counselor. Our plan is full of people with horrible counsel. Now, people don't get that. That was a seminarian. And I just had a heart I'm like, oh, Lord, please tell this guy. So he wanted to be a preacher. And he's like trying to figure out, like talking to people that are actually in churches. How do you do it? I don't know. It's not my calling. <laughs> it's his. I just said yes. And I simply have to pray. I don't have a five-year plan. I'm trying to figure out, Jesus, what do you want me to do today? Trust him for today. Trust him for tomorrow. Make sense? Amen? That's biblical. You'll find that in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew's Gospel. So what's your five-year plan? That sounded foolish to this guy. And I was just hoping as I would talk with him, like he was very corporate-minded. And that's, that's kind of what's coming out of seminaries. I can't say all, but definitely the one that this guy is going to. It's like, how can a seminary teach people how to trust God? The answer, they can't. Because it's something you have to walk out. You can't learn it in a book. You learn it with your feet. Make sense? And it's, this is how it's done. Oh, God, please help me, please. You know, what is it you want me to do? Oh, God, you're telling me to do this. I need your strength. I need your power. I'm only doing this, and I'm only here because this is what you want me to do, and this is where you want me to be. These are the people you want me to be with. I'm answering your call. For God, I know that you'll provide. And he does. How does he do it? I don't know. He doesn't tell you and I to figure it out. It's foolish to the world and it confounds the, the people, even Christians. Like, I just shared a couple examples. One was some missionary friends or wanted to be missionaries. Sadly, I don't think they ever became missionaries. Why? They're too worldly in their thinking and their ways. You got to just throw all that away and get on your face and just ask God. And that's it. Just how it goes. Here's what it says. That some of my friends didn't simply know. 
Proverbs 16. Here's what God says in Proverbs 16. And you and I need to know these things. The Spirit of God will witness to your heart and let you know. But he says in Proverbs 16, verse 1, The preparation of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of the man are pure in his own eyes. You and I are going to look at things like, Oh, yeah, this is totally, this is so God. And we might even think that. But the Lord weighs the spirits. Commit your works to the Lord and your thoughts will be established. And then down to verse 9. Look at what he says. A man's heart plans his way. I love this. But the Lord directs his steps. My, my friends, they're a Christian. Born again Christians. They simply never got to know God. And, and that might sound harsh. But very direct. It is direct. I don't know about harsh. I want to just speak the truth. My part's like in the book of Ephesians. I need to speak it in love. <laughs> I think that all of us need to practice that. But we need to know that God wants you to simply to believe him. And you've got to take all the worldly wisdom and your ways that you probably still have and throw them away and just get on your face, get on your knees, just cry out to him and wait for him. I've been praying for a week. So... Let me pray about it. It's not biblical. Let me pray until God speaks to me. That's biblical. God hasn't answered. Well, then maybe it's no. God hasn't answered. Maybe he's wanting you to wait. God, Daniel was like that. (laughs) He had to pray, and he prayed, and he waited until the answer came. And the answer was given right away, but it was thwarted. We need to just do that. Here's what God also says about church building. Whatever you want to call it. Whatever God does. This is the principle. Psalm 127, verse 1. A, if you want to say it, like the first part of it. Unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain who build it. So guys, when it comes to God's wisdom versus worldly wisdom, whether it's how God birthed this church, how God sustains this fellowship, how he sustains your life, you can't answer it. If you're trusting God, you cannot answer it with worldly wisdom. You can through the grace of God, though. Amen? How is it that God provides for you? I don't know. It's just his grace. That's our answer here. <laughs> I like that. How does he do it? I don't know. We open up the door. People come in. <laughs> he does it. <laughs> Let's continue on. Verse 20. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message priest to save those who believe. So remember, in God's view of things, the message of the cross has God's wisdom. But in the world's view, the world's ways of seeing things, the message of the cross is foolishness. Where it says in verse 21, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message. God isn't telling you that his message is foolish. He's telling you the perspective. This is how you and I probably were when you first heard of the message of God saving you through sending his son to die on a cross for your sins. The gospel, the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. Who here can can say that it sounded foolish to you? Right? The fact of a father loving me. Hello, I grew up without a dad that loved me. Like, no way. That was really hard for me to get over. And guess what? That's what the devil's trying to do with our dads. Why? Because then it's the, the, the result, the net result is a lot of people aren't going to get saved. Because when you come and preach John 3.16, God loved me, and you say he's your heavenly father. Now, I know about dads. No way. That's really what, that's the, the net payload of what happens. So the devil's trying to destroy marriages, trying to destroy families. Why? Because then he could drag souls down to hell. And he knows they're going to be sent in the lake of fire. It's a battle for souls. It's foolish to the world. Let's continue on. Verse 22. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. Ah, here it is in verse 23. Check this out, Christian. But we preach Christ crucified. Let's look at that again. Say that again. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block. And to the Greeks' foolishness. To preach Jesus Christ, Yeshua as Messiah, that he was crucified for your sins and the sins of the world, that's foolishness to the world. 
And the Jews are like, no, 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 show me a sign. Like, it doesn't make sense to them. Verse 24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, so Jews and Gentiles, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Preaching Christ crucified preaches about the power of God. And it preaches about the wisdom of God. Please know that. And please remember that you're going to be preaching to people that are like me, how I used to be. I think God allowed me to go through a lot of foolishness in my own life so that later on I'm like, oh God, it's like embarrassing how bad I was. <laughs> Some of you guys, who here was rough with Christians before? I was really rough. I get in people's face. You don't know your Bible. I really wanted to know. I just didn't know what to ask for or how to ask it. And I was too rough with people. Later on, I'm like, dang, God, thank you for having a lot of mercy and patience and grace with me. And now I know people I speak with, there's going to be a lot of people that were, that are you know, just like how I used to be. They got to give you and I a lot of grace, a lot of patience with them. Why? They're just like how you were. And what a God did. He didn't smash it. He just drew. He a little ant under my finger. Look at him. Look, that's a good example. Now you listen. <laughs> he didn't do that to me. He allowed me to go in my foolishness because he's got biblical principles that he'll uphold. Principles of sin and righteousness. And they started executing my life. I'm like, uh, I think we've got to talk. <laughs> my life really hurts. I think I destroyed my life too many times over. I think I need to listen now, God. <laughs> and then he gives you grace. So that you can have what with other people? Great. He gives you mercy. He gives you patience. Oh, a lot. Who here is he really patient with? Right? He still is, right? And you, if you're like me, you're kicking like for years. Right? Nobody's going to put chain on me. <laughs> and then later on you realize, oh, you're so patient. You're so very patient. And then what do you know later on, Christian? He's going to bring you people that are just like how you were. You know that. Because once you've been delivered and healed and rescued, your eyes can see it, right? Isn't that funny how that is? That's a principle. Second Corinthians chapter 1. God's God of all comfort. He's going to comfort you so that later on, you can point people to that same God of comfort. You see them like, God, that used to be... Was I really that bad, God? Oh, my. <laughs> Yes, Drew, you were worse. Oh, <laughs> Verse 25, <laughs> because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. He's not saying that God is foolish. There is no foolishness of God. The way that the world sees, they'll call it foolish. Even the cross, even you and I sitting here right now, gathering in the name of Jesus, reading Bibles, digging in, people serving for free, you know, all these kind of things, the world will go, oh, that's foolishness. They must be hitting you up for money all the time. No. <laughs> I've been here 22 years, haven't even asked for a single penny. And as long as I'm alive, this church won't. That's foolish. <laughs> There's no answer to it in the world. Why? Because that's God's wisdom. That's His grace. That's His way of doing things. The foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Again, it's not that God is foolish. It's not that God is weak. But the way that the world sees it, whatever the world says is foolish, it's way wiser than all the wisdom of the world. Whatever the world says is weak, oh, turn the other cheek, oh. You Christians are, are just so weak. No, my Jesus is the strongest man that ever lived. Our Jesus is. But the way that the world sees that, they call it weakness, but yet what? That's strong. He says it's stronger than men. For you see your calling, verse 26. Uh-oh. Here's you and I in verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, not many wise, and not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Okay. It sounds like a put down. <laughs> Remember, we're talking about the wisdom of God. We're talking about seeing things from God's perspective, His view, His, his vision. <laughs> God says, not many wise according to the flesh. Not many mighty, not many noble are called. So Christian, look around the room. Take a look at us. This is not a put down. If you had billions and billions and billions of dollars and golf courses and estates and buildings galore, It'd be tougher to receive Christ Jesus, right? 
Because many people in the world will go, oh, I don't need God. You need that crutch. I, I got money. I got my bank account. But you and I, we're just the average person. And we need the Lord. Not many of us are wise. Not many of us are mighty. Not many of us are noble. Verse 27. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world. Are you saying that I'm the foolish thing? Yes. Verse 20. Who here knows? You, you want to confess. Come on, raise your hand. Raise your hand high, Christian. You're the foolish things of the world. I want to preach that because you know why? This is what Paul inserts himself into. Unless you could humble yourself and declare that. <laughs> like Paul's preaching that here. You're not going to be very useful for God and the kingdom of God. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. Oh, there's a purpose for that. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. All right, let's just go ahead and finish up here. That no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. We're going to close here. I'm going to read Isaiah 42. Can we all stand please? We're going to close with a word of prayer here. And then we got a birthday celebration that we can share about. Isaiah 42, verse 8, God says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Verse 29 again in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that we read, no flesh should glory in his presence. There's going to be no one in heaven or no one that claims to follow Christ even on the planet right now that's going to be someone that God allows to rip off, to steal his glory. He doesn't want any flesh to glory in his presence. He says and again in Isaiah 42, my glory I will not give to another. He'll share his glory with no one. He and he alone wants to be glorified. That's why even as we've been preaching through in the previous weeks, Ephesians chapter 2, you are saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. There's going to be no one in heaven that says, you got here because of the blood of Jesus as he died on the cross? Oh, I got here because I'm a good person, man. I am so smart. I am so humble. <laughs> Sounds funny even saying that. You and I are going to be those in the body of Christ collectively gathered in heaven for all eternity because of God's grace. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. He's the one that did the work for you and I. We need to boldly not just receive it, but preach and share that. Amen. Father in heaven, we ask that you would please empower us mightily that we can share. We wouldn't just wear the cross, but help us to share, to boldly preach. But Father in heaven, we ask that you would send your spirit. We pray to you, Father, in the name of Jesus, empower us mightily that like Paul, we could preach the cross of Christ boldly help us lord that whenever we leave this place we can leave as a missionary go back to our communities our jobs our families our friends and we can share the goodness that you have we can share your love your joy your peace that you give us it's because of the cross of christ help us to share that with the world not just here in new york city but wherever you take us where we ask Empower us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.